0: Our Father, we do thank you as we've heard from your word and in prayer and in song this morning for the grace that we have received, grace we've received as sinners, grace we've received as rebels, but grace that has made us sons and children, citizens of a kingdom that is to come, those you call friends because you have brought us near to yourself through the sacrifice of Christ. Those... Promises in scripture that you have given are given to us to encourage our hearts, to cause our eyes of faith to look beyond what is visible in this world to those things which cannot be seen, but are more real than the things that we see here. They are certain and sure and keep our hearts strengthened by these promises, by these truths, by faith that brings into our present experiences those things that are Awaiting for us in the future And even as we open your word to continue to look at your book of Revelation And to remember these promises in the Lord's table together Strengthen our hearts by grace that you may be exalted And your life may shine more brightly in us in a dark world And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things, Amen Well go ahead and open up your Bibles if you will to the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 1 uh, let me just say before we begin, uh, for those who, well, there was an email sent out, but uh, just to give a public uh, reminder that the memorial service for SIV is this Tuesday evening, so from 6 to 7, so if you can make it, um, be sure to come. And while there's the sadness, of course, of losing someone that is a friend and a mother and uh, just a loved sister in the Lord, uh, she is with him right now, and then for that gives us much joy. Um, She's doing better than we are, actually, Um, and we want to join her. She beat us, (laughs) but one day we'll be with the same Lord and enjoying the same glories as her, And, and when we're together with her, it'll be a time without end. Well, we find ourselves again back in the book of Revelation. Revelation this morning, we're coming into the next section, which is really verses 9 through 20, as John receives his commission as a messenger of the Lord, a commission to write to the church what he has received from the risen lord and he's writing the message from the risen and exalted lord the sovereign christ the one who has completed his mission the one who is even right now at the right hand of the father and so there is in a very real sense and what will unfold more and more in the weeks ahead A real sense that he brings us into the presence of the risen and exalted Christ to remind us that he who suffered for us is he who now is reigning, who is sovereign, who is glorious, who is our hope. And in reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest reality of the gospel proclamation in many sense. The greatest reality of his work as our redeemer and mediator. Now you might think, isn't it his atonement where he paid for our sins? Isn't that the greatest reality? Well, of course, that is the foundation because our sins needed to receive its just condemnation. But it is the resurrection that sets him apart from just A good moral teacher who would say he died for our sins. In fact, by rising from the dead, he proved that he was everything that he said he was, and he accomplished everything that he said he would. Let me just give you a few reminders about the significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And let me just even as a footnote say that sometimes that's the point that we leave out of our gospel presentation. We leave it as Christ died for our sins, but we need to equally declare that Christ rose from the dead, that he is a resurrected Lord, he is a resurrected Messiah, and he is a returning Messiah. Indeed, that's how scripture presents it. The resurrection proves him as the Messiah and the Son of God. In Romans 1-4, just listen, I'm just going to run through a list here. In Romans 1-4, he is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It's proved our justification, we who have trusted in him, Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification. It assures us of the pow- that the power of sin has been broken in us, not only its penalty, but its power. In Romans 6.4, so that as Christ has been raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It is his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the Father in which he received the promise of the Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost and that we now enjoy. Acts 2.33, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Peter says that's what you saw poured out on the day of Pentecost and the church was formed. It guarantees our own resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. It gives undeniable proof of his person, work, and future judgment. In Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, Paul says this, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It affirms his mediation for us that he is our high priest and our intercessor who is even right now as we speak and live each moment at the right hand interceding for us who are his people. Says this in Hebrews 7, 25, that he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more, it proves his right to rule that he is indeed the sovereign over all of creation. Paul says this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.20, He raised him, the he there, the father, raised him, the son, Christ. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, the resurrection is the guarantee and the proof and the fulfillment of His sovereign glory. He has completed His work. Everything that that means in relation to His purpose, in relation to God's eternal purposes in Christ for all of creation, in relation to His people, is realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when He speaks to us here, and through John, He is speaking to us as the resurrected Lord. It reveals how he stands in relation to both the world and to his people as sovereign Lord. It means then that when he speaks to John and through John to us as the church, and through the church declaring that message to the world, he speaks as the sovereign and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how God intends us to receive this message and why he spends time establishing this very reality in the beginning. And it's to this reality that John draws us in this next section. And so, what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is this six self disclosures of the risen sovereign Lord for the comfort and the confrontation of his people. Six self disclosures of the sovereign Lord for the comfort and the confrontation of his people. I'll list them now. We're going to look at the first this morning. That he is the first, the sovereign Lord of revelation, that he is the sovereign Lord of glory that he is the sovereign Lord of history, that he is the sovereign Lord of redemption, and that he is the sovereign Lord of judgment, and he is the sovereign Lord of the church. So don't worry, we'll repeat those and be looking at those over the next few weeks. We'll begin this morning with he is the sovereign Lord of revelation. So let's start just by reading uh, the passage. And we'll read verses 9 through 11 this morning. Actually, let's go ahead and read down to verse 20, and then we'll come back to verses 9 and 11. So we have the whole passage in our mind. So beginning in verse 9, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard, him behind, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches." to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying... Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so a dramatic confrontation or presentation of the risen Christ who is speaking to us and is speaking to John who brings us into the experience that he had in receiving his commission to write. So let's look first at the sovereign Lord of Revelation. And this is verses 9 through 11. The sovereign Lord of Revelation. And the first thing we're introduced to In the sovereign Lord of Revelation is the servant of the Lord, and that is the the apostle John himself. And this really is a tender way to begin this account. John begins by identifying himself as a servant of the Lord and one who is in the same family, on the same level as those to whom he's writing. He says he introduces himself as your brother and your fellow partaker or your fellow sharer in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance in Jesus. So he marks himself by two ways. In two ways, he is a brother and a fellow partaker. And this really is a very humbling and a very encouraging introduction by John to us. It's humble because he says here, he is your brother. He is giving us an identity of himself that says, we're all in this together, we're all in the family of God. I'm writing to you, one who, who, though, is an apostle, who has authority as an apostle. He cuts through any sense of superiority, any uh, sense of hierarchy, and he says, I'm writing to you as one in the family. I'm writing to you as a brother. I'm writing to you as one who is equal with you, who is sharing in these things as well. I'm writing to you with the intimacy and the connection of a family member. Though he's an apostle, he doesn't hold that position up. He holds himself out as a servant of God, the same as those to whom he's writing and the same to us. He understands well the tenderness of this term and the glory of this term. It is a very term that identifies implicitly, of being in union with Christ with everyone else, that he shares the same Father and the same Spirit. The greatest humble use of this identity is by Christ himself. Of course, in Hebrews 2, I'll just mention this, he said he's not ashamed to call us brother. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, because in Christ we share the same Father. Him uniquely is the eternal Son, we in Christ. And as a matter of fact, this even identification harkens back to Christ's own identification after the resurrection. If you remember, when he appeared to the women, he said, I'm going back, go and tell my disciples that I'm going back to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. In Christ, we share this intimate relationship. And John really is picking up on that, and he he hints at that even at the end. He says he's writing all of these things that we share in the middle of verse 9 in Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I'm writing to you one who shares in the life of Christ, who shares in the identity of Christ, who shares in the experience of Christ as a member of the family of Christ. And so he says, your brother. And he says, your fellow partaker. This uh, shared identity makes me a fellow partaker. in all that that identity implies. He's a fellow partaker in the experience and the life of living in Christ in this world. He says, I share in the life. I share in the struggles. I share in the hopes. I share in the warnings. I share in it all with you. And so he's not writing from an ivory tower of ease and safety, but one who's involved in the battle. He's fighting the fight with the rest. And so he identifies the way that he shares, and by doing that, identifying the experience of all of those to whom he's writing, to us as the church, the church throughout the ages. And he describes it in three ways, the sharing. What is he sharing? He says, a fellow partaker in what? In the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance. Now, there's some discussion on the exact way that these are related, but it really doesn't change in either way the the heart, the essence of what he's saying, which is essentially this, that he shares in what God's people share in, and that is the suffering that comes from being a part of the kingdom of Christ in a kingdom that is opposed to Christ the kingdom of the antichrist and we share in this together we endure together as we wait the full realization of the arrival of our king but well, let's consider this a little bit closely He says he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation. To be a part of the church is to share in the tribulation that comes with being identified with Christ. Now, this is not the theological tribulation of the seven years that we'll be getting into later, the seventh week of Daniel that begins in chapter 6 of Revelation and will take us all the way through the end of chapter 19. He's not talking about that. Here, tribulation is simply a general term to refer to the struggles and the suffering that come with being identified with Christ. It's the general suffering that all believers experience at some level because of being identified with Christ. And he certainly was a part of that tribulation. As a matter of fact, he says he's writing this to us from the island of Patmos. He says that there at the end. He was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Now there's, again, discussion here of exactly what his conditions were, but it clearly, what is unanimous is that it was a place of banishment, it was a place of some measure of suffering because of his testimony of Christ. Now, there are some have said that this suffering was actually pretty intense. We tend to think of maybe John on a lonely island somewhere and the sun beating down on him and... Uh, He's just kind of wandering around alone out there, and that's possibly a part of the scene. But one old writer uh, described it this way. Or, first of all, describes Patman this way, so we can just get a picture of where he was. A barren, rocky little island belonging to a group of islands called the Sporades. It's ten miles long, five miles wide. It's crescent-shaped, with the horns of the crescent pointing to the east. Lies 40 miles off of the coast of Asia Minor. Because I know everybody has a map of Asia Minor in their head right now, and you can tell exactly where that is. It was the last haven on the voyage from Rome to Ephesus, in the first, in the opposite direction, one says. So it was a big barren rock, it was off the islands, out in the sea, by itself. But John's condition there, what exactly he was enduring, as I noted, is a matter of some discussion. One ancient writer, Victorianus, said that it was a place of hard labor and that he was condemned to the quarries and that he was daily under the strain and the struggle of a taskmaster who's causing him to work hard. One New Testament archaeologist, Sir William Ramsay, suggested this in describing his banishment. His banishment would be, quote, preceded by scourging, marked by perpetual fetters, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on the bare ground, a dark prison, work under the lash of the military overseer. One even said, ancient writer, you're familiar with some of these names, Tertullian, suggested that before he was banished, that he was first immersed in boiling water and without harm. Who knows? But whatever the precise condition, John was identified as being banished to a place because of of exclusion from the comforts that he would have known before because of his faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he's saying... I'm going to partake with you in the tribulation. I know what it's like to suffer for the kingdom. And this is important because he's calling the church to do the same. If you went to verse 9 when he speaks to Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know what you're suffering by those who say they're Jews, he says, but they're from the synagogue of Satan. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer, it's only temporary. He can say that because he's like, I'm suffering with you. I'm a fellow partaker. I'm not immune from these things. He says in verse 22 to Pergamum, or to, excuse me, to Thyatira, he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who are uh, causing trouble in the church and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And that's the tribulation that comes to the world to those who are going to reject the message of Christ. That's the tribulation from God himself. But, Outside of that, there is the tribulation that those who belong to Christ will suffer uh, because of his name. So in other words, to be named with Christ, and this is what he wants to establish, is saying, look, I'm writing those who are named with Christ, and know that by bearing that name, you're marked as an enemy of the evil one. You're marked as an enemy of the evil one. You're in a hostile world that is in rebellion to God. And this isn't new to John. We're familiar with this. This is a key exhortation throughout Scripture. Just listen to a few passages. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 9, speaking to his disciples, they will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, as he anticipates the characteristics of the end. In Acts 14, 22, it says of the apostle that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote this. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. The idea is tribulation. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. This is what we were called to. We were not called to have our best life in this world, but we were called to hope in the life that has been gained for us by Christ in the world to come. Just before his betrayal, the very night of his betrayal, Jesus said this to his disciples. The last thing recorded for us in that extended conversation in John 13-16 through 16 of his time with the disciples... Before the betrayal of Judas. He says this in John 16.33. These things I have spoken to you. So that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. In other words then. When John says here. I am your brother and your fellow particular, partaker. In the tribulation. He's saying. The tribulation, your fellow partaker in the the natural and expected consequence of belonging to Christ in the world, we share in this together. Now, the reality is this: then that any gospel presentation that does not include the reality or the possibility, or tries to minimize or hides the true consequences of following Christ in this world, is not a true gospel. It's not a true gospel presentation. It's not true. It's not reality. It's not being honest. Jesus said to his disciples, You remember, take up your cross and follow me. Luke says, Take up your cross daily. One said this, speaking of the need to be clear on this, Contrary to some modern prosperity teaching, membership of Christ's kingdom does not shield us from suffering. Rather, for John and his readers, membership of the kingdom was the cause of their suffering. And that's an important part of our call and understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So if you remember that Peter says, don't be surprised by the affliction in 1 Peter chapter 4. Don't be surprised at when the hostility and you receive resistance by the world. Don't be surprised when all of a sudden you're not given social credit, but social demerit because of your identity with Christ. Don't be surprised at these things. Don't act as if something strange is happening to you. If Christ wasn't spared from it, as our head and our Savior, if the apostles weren't spared from it, if the most godly throughout the ages weren't spared from it, you're not spared from it. But He says we share in this together. We share in this together. So when we present the gospel as the note here, we're presenting a summons of the Lord, a call to repent that includes, and trust Him, that includes the willingness to suffer. To experience tribulation. He endured it as well. But the encouragement again is here. Whatever sufferings and difficulties come to you because of your testimony in Christ. You're not alone with him. And that's, that's really the intent here. When he's, when he's trying to bring himself down and say that we're sharing in this together. It is to say we're together. You're not alone. Again, don't act as if some strange thing is happening to you. When we suffer, we suffer as the body of Christ. Now it's always a little bit... St- almost insincere saying these things because nobody in this room is suffering anything like God's people are suffering throughout the world that are here or have through the ages. So it's always hard for us, in a sense, as Americans to discuss this. But the reality is, is these are the truths that need to undergird us so that we're prepared to receive any consequences that may come and so that we're prepared in the future for whatever God may have. We don't know. But we need to be girded up with these truths. And one of the truths and one of the things that helps God's people who do have to suffer various degrees of consequences for following Christ in this world, again, is that they are not alone. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5.9. Just listen. He says, after saying that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, Uh, Seeking who he can devour. He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. That's one of the great values of reading biographies. If you don't read many biographies, I would encourage you to do that. Why? Because when we read biographies, we're encouraged by those who are faithful to the end. We're encouraged by those who faced difficulties, by those who endured hardships, by those who experienced tribulation, and their faith remained sound. It remained complete until the end. And a good biography is an honest biography, and it doesn't mean it's not without struggle. It doesn't mean that it's not without failing. It doesn't mean that it's not without times of doubt. But it does mean that in the end, it's a testimony of a faith that persevered. And when we look at that, we say, they persevered. I can persevere. They endured this and knew God's strength. I can endure this and know God's strength. And that's essentially what John is doing here. I'm a fellow partaker with you. You're not alone in this. When we suffer tribulation, we suffer tribulation together. We're in this together as the family of God. And he also says, then we share in the kingdom together. I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and of the kingdom. We share in present suffering, but we share in suffering that is under the sovereign control of Christ and has as its end glory, joy, and blessing. And again, the reminder here essentially is this, is that to belong to the kingdom of Christ is to belong to the king, right? It's to belong to the true king. But that kingdom is not yet. That kingdom is not yet. What is very clear in Revelation and throughout the New Testament is that there is a kingdom that God has given temporary authority now, and that is the kingdom of the Antichrist. He is not yet bound. He is not yet kept from deceiving the nations. He is not yet put in his place so the saints of Christ can reign. That's what he promises to us as a future hope. Right now, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. But we are in a kingdom then that, and we are citizens of a kingdom in hostile territory. In hostile territory. The kingdom of the Antichrist is the one that he's undergirding them to face. Now you will remember in 1 John, he says the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. So Satan is already working, the spirit of deception is already in the world, that which deceives men, not only to blind them to the gospel of Christ, but actually in that blindedness to have an antipathy, a hatred, a hostility toward the gospel of Christ. And so while the spirit of antichrist is in the world, he he later uh, anticipates this rise, this unique expression of this kingdom of the antichrist, and he wants to prepare us for that. You're to give you a few examples of what is to come he says in Revelation 13 that the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority this is the beast that's going to rise up with political and economic authority undergirded by the false prophet with a religious authority and he's going to exercise a power over the world that is expressed not only in his own self glory and all manner of sin but by a hatred of those who name the name of Christ. It says in verse 6 He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority to every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. In other words, we're a part of a kingdom, and in this kingdom we're sharing in tribulation, and in this kingdom we are citizens of a glory that is yet to come, but is not yet here. We're currently under the kingdom of the Antichrist, but we endure because we know that kingdom is temporary, don't we? We know that kingdom is temporary. The one that we've received is a kingdom that will not end. And he says we share in that together as well. You remember in Hebrews, he says, as we gather together, encourage one another all the more day by day, as you, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to encourage one another. What do we encourage one another with? Well, we're going to encourage one another to persevere, to turn away from sin, to not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, to hang on to the promises of God. And we're to encourage one another with this reminder. We are citizens of a kingdom that is to come. Don't give up. Persevere. This is what John's going to do as he encourages the readers and us throughout the book of Revelation. He says in chapter 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. And then he says, And they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death because they knew the kingdom with which they shared in with each other. And under Christ's rule is the kingdom that would ultimately prevail. Let me just give you one more. In chapter 11, verse 15. Familiar words, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So we are a part of a kingdom and we must persevere to the end. Listen to how he ends. Actually, I said one more, but listen to this. In Revelation 24. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had worshipped the beast or his image and they had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And this is the reminder. We are in enemy territory, he says, and I know what that's like because I'm suffering with you. We are under the... The the hatred of a kingdom that opposes everything that we stand for And the one that we love But don't worry Because ultimately we will prevail And again, Peter encourages with these words After you've suffered a little while The God of all grace Who called you into his eternal glory In Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you So John says this That we are Fellow partakers in the tribulation, trouble is going to come. We are fellow partakers in the kingdom, the kingdom is to come. But then he says here, and this is what holds it together and proves this fellowship, he says, and the perseverance which are in Jesus. As we're in the tribulation together, in the kingdom together, we also persevere together. And this is what we're called to is perseverance. Perseverance in difficulty, perseverance through trial, through testing, through the onslaughts of the world to persevere in faith. And this faith is in Jesus. What does it mean to persevere in Jesus? It means this that you remain faithful. That you remain faithful. That you remain faithful. What is your prayer? I know that my prayer constantly is I as many of us do think of the future and whatever it might hold. My prayer is always only this. Lord, help me to be faithful. Make me to be faithful to the end. Faithful. That's what Christ calls us to. That's what it means to persevere in Jesus. It means simply this, to be faithful. It means to be like Christ, who was faithful to the end. That's what he calls the church to, is to be faithful. That's it. If you remember, what does he say to those to whom we receive reward at the end? He says, well done, my good and my faithful servant. My faithful servant. He's called us to be persevering, to persevere. He says this in chapter 14, verse 12 of Revelation. Here is the perseverance of the saints. What does that look like? He says, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's it. They didn't deny him. It means not to turn away from him, it means not to compromise on his truth. It means not to cower in the face of opposition. It means to stand firm when everyone else may fall away. It means to keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In everything that God reveals Him to be. It is a call to perseverance. And those who belong to Christ will persevere in faith. In fact, it's the very identity Of belonging to Christ. By contrast, those who do not belong to Jesus, those who are a part of the church, do not persevere. And when tribulation comes and when trial comes, they turn away. They compromise. They fall away. They no longer hold to what the confession that they once held. And in Matthew 13, you remember these familiar words when Jesus is explaining the... Parable of the Soils. He says in verse 21 or verse 20, the one who in whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Falls away. He denies. He says, you know, I'm willing to walk with Christ this far, but I'm not willing to walk with Christ that far. And that means that person is one who doesn't persevere and proved themselves only to be what they were all along, a false convert. One who liked the externals of religion until the cost became real. And that is why we do a disservice to anyone when we claim and say that repentance is not a part of faith. That's why we do a disservice to anyone if we hide from them in the gospel the reality of what it means to follow Christ. Jesus warned against that, didn't he? He said, who goes to build a tower, but he doesn't first consider whether he has enough material Who goes out against a larger army And doesn't consider first whether he can win the battle So is the one who makes a profession to Christ And says they want to be disciples But does not consider the cost There's perseverance that's needed Because there's going to be tribulation Because you belong to a kingdom Which stands in direct opposition to this world And look, scripture does not sugarcoat this in any way In Hebrews chapter 10, if you remember the general context of Hebrews, he's writing to a second generation of believers, of Jews, and he's writing to them, one, to encourage those who are believers to persevere in light of the difficulties that they're going to face. But we have what are well known as these warning passages throughout Hebrews, and they're these little reminders throughout the book of Hebrews in which the writer tells us and says, but realize that you have need of perseverance because ultimately it's not a matter of what you did or what initial act of faith that you displayed. It is a matter of that you continue that faith until the end, that you persevere, that you remain in that faith which you've professed. And so he says, for example... In verse 26 of Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He says in verse. Thirty-two, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Verse 36, You have need of endurance. You need to Persevere, So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But what marks those who are truly in him and those aren't? Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preser- preserving of the soul. And as some of you may know, that's the context for Hebrews 11. A faith, look at those who endured before, look at those who faced opposition, look at those and be encouraged by them, and then he puts the climactic statement, and look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and he is now at the right hand of God so we have need of perseverance, and to not persevere, to face the, the consequences of following and identi- identifying with Christ, is to prove that one does not belong to Him. But to persevere proves that God's grace has been perfected in us, that it is in fact a reality. But what he calls us to here is the reminder to say that, look, I'm a fellow partaker with you. I am a brother. I am one who is identified as a member of the family of God. I am in Christ with you, in Jesus. And that means that I'm going to suffer tribulation with you, that we're going to suffer that together, that we're going to suffer the consequences of being in a kingdom that is not yet here, but we have the same hope. And it means that we will persevere together. But we must understand that this perseverance is not... From our strength. We we can't persevere on our own. And that was the point we remember at the very beginning, where he talks about in alluding to Zechariah and identifying the Spirit as the seven spirits, it's not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, Zechariah four six, that you will endure. It's only by his spirit that we will endure. It's only by his spirit that we will not turn away. It's only by His Spirit that we will not go out from the gospel and deny it and apostatize and show that we were not really of Him. But we, we can have confidence of that because if we belong to Christ, we will persevere. We will persevere. You know, I can just as a footnote here say that in my own life, God has used that very reality to strengthen my confidence in belonging to Him. I know for years, like many of you, I struggled with assurance of faith, you know, looking at my heart, and and that was just a constant battle. And one of the turning points, one of those, you know, before and after moments when that came to a climactic head was this. It was looking at my life and knowing my heart and realizing that God never let me go. He never abandoned me to myself. That he kept me and he preserved me. And as I looked at my life over a period of time now that had gone by. And I looked and I said, if I'm in Christ and love him, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with his saving grace. And that's the idea here. If we're going to persevere against the kingdom of Antichrist. If we're going to persevere against the onslaughts of the world. If we're going to not deny Christ not loving our lives even unto death. It's not going to be because of you. It's going to be because... Christ has redeemed us. The Father has placed us in His Son and He will keep us. And so that is our confidence. We don't face the future by our own resilience. If you do, you're going to fall. You're going to be like Peter. He says, I will not deny you, but he did until he learned to trust in God's strength. This is why you will not fail. If you belong to Christ, let me encourage you with this. This is why you will not fail Because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. That's why you won't fail. Because what you have received is guaranteed not only by the work of Christ, but by the eternal purpose of God before he created one single Adam. This is what Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No evil government system, no false teacher, no political leader, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are one in our divine ability to keep those whom he has come to redeem. We are one in our purpose and our intention in redemption. Whoever belongs to Christ is kept. This is the perseverance of the saints. Some of you grew up in a theology that said you could believe in Christ, you could be regenerated in Christ, you could be united to Christ, and you could sin bad enough to fall away that Christ would let you go. That's a lie. It's not true. If you belong to Christ, you will stumble and you will fail, but you will persevere to the end. That's the very proof that you belong to Him. You will persevere because God will keep you. You will persevere because Christ has purchased you. You can't be unregenerate and then unregenerate. You can't be in union with Christ and then out of Christ unless you have a works-based understanding of it. You are in Christ by grace. You are kept by grace. You will be preserved by grace, and you will be brought home by grace. And so at the end of the day, when you stand before Christ, you will say it's from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Because he has kept me. He has brought me here. And can you imagine the, ex- the overwhelming experience of the comprehensiveness of his grace that will be impressed upon our hearts and our souls when we stand before an all-glorious Lord and realize I'm here because of your doing, period, period. I couldn't earn my salvation, I couldn't keep my salvation, though we must struggle. It's him who enables us to do this. We are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is how John wants to introduce this to us. We are in this together. I am an apostle, but I am also a sharer in the tribulation that comes from being identified with Christ. It's a part of knowing Him. It's a part of being identified with Him. It's a part of this world. But as a part of our tribulation, we also share in the promise of the kingdom, and we also share in being kept by Him who keeps us. Not by our own strength, not by our own resolve, not by our own ability, but because of His promise. And so as we come into the table, let's remember these words. We sing them. This is one of my favorite songs. I'm sure it's one of yours as well. But this is what we profess, isn't it, when we sing this song? And tell me if this doesn't bring a sense of worship to your heart. The song goes like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold but he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast and why does he do this and why are we secure? because for my life he bled and died Christ will hold me fast justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast raised with him to endless life He will hold me fast until our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Beloved, that is a great encouragement that John wants to face us with. God himself, Christ himself, through whom this word came, wants to say, look, expect tribulation. Don't be surprised when you have opposition from the world. Don't be surprised when this sort of... Parentheses in the, in the history of the world that we've experienced in America Where being a Christian gave you a social credit It gave you a sort of admiration in the world It doesn't work that way anymore Not by and large It makes you a target It makes you a hater And as we looked at last week with the rise of this The ban on conversion therapy and so forth The movement of the sexual revolution it makes you a hater and a persecutor and it makes you the oppressor. So don't be surprised when these battles come and we have to stand firm. But know that you are a part of the kingdom and know this, that you, will, you must persevere to the end, but your perseverance is going to be because of him who keeps you, because of Christ, and that's our prayer. Lord, help me to persevere. Help me to be faithful. Help me to love my life till death. Here's one that may be a little harder. Help me not to love my comforts. To death, Help me to not love my sense of security Unto death Help me to not love the praise of other people Not wanting their scorn Help me to love you In such a way That my life As I profess in coming to faith Is not my own But belongs to you And so that's what we remember in the Lord's table When we come here We remember that we belong to him Who persevered for us We are in union with him Who has accomplished for us the victory? That the Christ that we worship and that we pray to when we bow our heads in the silence of our hearts, and we do so as the community of believers, the body of Christ in this place, we do so to Him who keeps us, who guards us, who protects us, who loves us. He said that earlier. That he who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood is the one who will make sure that we are with him in his kingdom. As a matter of fact, just isn't that what Christ prayed to the Father? He says, I can't wait till they're with me and they see my glory. The glory that I'm gonna share with them. I can't wait till that day. So the Christ who gave us these symbols to remember him is the same Christ who says, I can't wait till you're with me. I can't wait till you're not gathered in a church here and taking these elements but to earn my presence and you see my glory and you know the fullness of my infinite kindness and love to you. And so we find strength in that and carry on. Let me pray and then the men will hand out the elements. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are reminded that we don't suffer alone, we don't rejoice alone, we don't hope alone, we don't fight sin alone. Though each one of us does so as an individual and as a child of God, we do so with the encouragement and the fellowship of being brothers and sisters. We do that with the reminder that together we're a part of a kingdom that we encourage one another in with all of its hopes and its promises, with all of its realities of future glory. We do so as those who long to see each other persevere who long to see each other hold firm. We do so with a sensitivity that no one is deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, but we come along, our brother and sister, and we say, hold on till the end. We do so to those who find encouragement of, as the, of, from those who have gone before us, who have been faithful to the end, and we can look at their life, and we can say, the same Christ dwells within me, the same Spirit dwells within me. And Lord, why we have relative ease right now, Help us to so nurture and foster our relationship with you and our walk with you. That when trials come that are increasingly greater, that we will be faithful to the end. For we know our faithfulness is bound to this one truth. You will hold us fast and you will keep us. And we thank you for that. And we pray now that you'd strengthen our hearts by grace as we remember these glorious truths and these emblems of those truths that you have given to us in what we call the Lord's Supper. And we ask you to do this. And we pray in your name. Amen.